This is WLNZ Lansing. You're listening to LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. To find out more about LCC Connect programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. You're listening to LCC Alumni Stories, a show dedicated to highlighting the amazing alumni of Lansing Community College. I'm Steve Robinson, president of LCC, and on each episode I have the awesome privilege of getting to know one of our many inspiring alums and hearing about their experiences at and since leaving LCC. The LCC alumni community is expansive and far-reaching. They're an incredibly diverse group of people, representative of all the walks of life, working in hundreds of industries across the country. LCC Alumni Stories shines a bright light on alumni who make positive contributions to their communities and showcases those who overcome obstacles and barriers to achieve academic and personal success. These are their dynamic stories. My guest today is Rick Hamilton, a 1990 graduate of LCC who earned his associate's degree in aviation technology. He's currently the CEO of Blue Planet Software. Rick, it's great to have you on the show. Yeah, Steve, great. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And, you know, before we talk about your time here at LCC, your degree and your field have taken you all over the world. I would love to hear about what you do at Blue Planet and your background and experience in aviation. Tell me uh, what you're doing right now. Sure. Right now... Uh, Blue Planet Software, we write uh, AI software for all the large carriers around the world. So think AT&T, uh, Comcast, all of those kind of network providers around the world. We, we, we write software for them that helps them automate their, their networks. Okay, and AI is artificial <clears throat> intelligence. Artificial intelligence, right. So right, can, can you tell me a little bit about what this software does for these giant companies? Well, the best way to describe it, it can get a little bit geeky, I guess, is, mm-hmm. you know, they have very large networks that have a bunch of different domains and segments, and that, that takes a lot of people to run, uh-huh. to configure them, to make sure they're running properly, capacity, throughput, route paths. So we, we write software that gives them intelligent ways to manage that so they can do it machine to machine instead of having people running those networks. Got it. So instead of having real humans doing switching or connecting these systems, you write software that helps these systems work together. That's exactly right. For for example, if if you're a cable provider, we know that traffic at a certain point of the day is a heck of a lot higher than it is at other points of the day. So we help them shift their networks around in real time so that you get the best experience you can have from, from their networks and they don't have to hire people to do that work. Well, and some of those some of those tasks are probably better done by software than people. It's not just a function of replacing people, but the software uh, knows more and can do it faster probably. Yeah, and it's, you know, the the heart of machine to machine learning is that a machine talking to a machine can do it better than a a human talking to a machine, so that's for sure. I find that fascinating. So, Blue Planet, you're um, headquartered in Detroit? No, I just live in Detroit. Our headquarters is actually in Baltimore, Maryland. Okay, okay. so the, the headquarters are in Baltimore, but yep. you live you live back here in Michigan. But you haven't always done software, right? You had a career in aviation. Tell me a little bit about this career that took you all over the world. Yeah, I started, uh, well, actually, when I graduated here, I was doing what everybody does. I got all my certifications, and I was a flight instructor, and... Got a cargo job in California. I moved to California to fly airplanes mm-hmm. for a living. 
But uh, we can talk about it later. I actually learned a lot here about computers and computer science. Oh, I can't wait to hear. Yeah, and so my hobby was writing software, and my my profession was flying airplanes. But in the early '90s, you know, flying airplanes was not the most lucrative career in the world. Okay. And uh, I don't know. It just happened one day. Hobby became a, a career, and career became a hobby. So that that started you know this movement around the world. So I lived in. Boy, I was in California for almost 10 years. I lived in Hong Kong and Singapore for three. I just came back from Europe. I was there for 10 years. So that's mostly been technology-related. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the, the time period here. So your hobby, then hobby, of, of coding and computer software, right, be, became so much more marketable, and the demand probably went through the roof. Oh, yeah, it was crazy. I mean, I, I did a special project for a small company out there. I had a friend that worked there. He said, can you help us with this problem? I'm like, yeah, mm -hmm. I know this. I know how to do this work. We can talk about that later. It was on a platform called an AS400, which the college here used to run, and I got to spend a bunch of time with. I learned RPG here at LCC, so I said, I know RPG, and I know the AS400. I can solve this problem for you. And literally, I did that twice, and at the end of the week, I got a paycheck, and it was more money than I'd made two months flying. So all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, this is this is something very interesting, and I can still fly, and I can make a better living, and it's just the way it went. So that's fascinating to me. It sounds like you learned how to fly in multiple ways here yeah. at LCC, <laughs> right? You literally fly, but also fly with your career. That's maybe a great way to pivot back to the time you studied did you uh, did you grow up around here well how did you how how did you get to lcc i did i grew up just north of here small little farming town called fowler mm -hmm. and um I, I come from a fairly big family of five brothers and um you know access to uh, big universities was a problem financially uh, uh -huh. but but i knew i wanted to fly airplanes and at that time LCC had one of the foremost flight schools in the country, in fact. I don't right. know if you remember those days, but it was one of the best flight schools around. Uh, so, yeah, so I wound up getting a job here and, uh, you know, entering school here. I, I did a couple courses my last year of high school. So you started the, the, on this flight training in aviation while you were in high school yeah. in Fowler, right? And, yep. but, and obviously the flight program is what attracted you to LCC. Yep. You came here and you eventually earned that associate degree. Um so you, you did the flight training, but you also worked here, didn't I, you? I did. Yeah, tell me about your experience doing that. Yeah, it was great, actually. I, um, You know, when I first came to school, figuring out how to pay for everything was a big challenge because, you know, flight school, we had – LCC was still is, but it was very affordable to go to basic classes. Right. But I had to fly airplanes, so the lab fees were, were pretty big. So they I can to, be, yeah. They, they can be, and I had to work. Uh, so as part of my student aid package, uh, the college offered me a job, and I worked over in uh, a building just across from here, business services. Right. Uh, Nineteen At the end of 89, I guess I was a mail guy. So it was a great job because I was delivering mail all over the campus, and I got to meet everybody. It was uh, it was really, really a great way to start. So you worked in the mail room. That is a, like an iconic yeah. first job, right? It was right? a cliche in, thing, right? No, it's awesome. And, <laughs> and so you worked in that. And I think that that building you're talking about, the one you uh, worked in, is no longer there, Yeah. right? But it got you all over campus. And so did you work the entire time you were studying here? Yeah, I did. I worked, uh, I took mostly night classes out at the airport. Right, because at that time, our listeners would remember in the in the 80s and the 90s, the flight program was at Capital City that's Airport, right. Right? That's right? That's where we had that. So you were you were working here at the downtown campus, heading out to the airport to take classes. That's right. That's right. Yep. So um, did you start flying right when you right when you graduated? I did. I, I 
I took a small internship with a school as mm-hmm. a flight instructor, and okay. two months later, I got offered a job in California. So packed up my little car and off to California I went. So so you were flying cargo and then also training pilots? Yep, training pilots out of Burbank and uh, flew for a company called Amflight. But back in those days, the cargo was canceled checks. You, you, you probably remember checks. Everybody wrote checks. And I the, do. And the banks had to move them around physically. So I had a route that was just nothing but mail bags full of checks, and I would fly to four airports every day and back to Burbank, and that was a year, year and a half of work for me. I never even thought about it. Of course I know about checks, but it didn't occur to me that they had to get from bank to bank and place to place. So you literally were yeah. putting them in airplanes and flying them between yep. banks. Yep. You leave one airport, two bags would go off. Get to that airport, two bags would come on. It was the same thing over and over. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. So you did that in California, but it sounds like you got some other non-aviation skills here at LCC that later came in handy out there in, in California about the dot-com yeah, boom era, right, right? right? Tell me about that. What did you study having to do with computers here? Well, I didn't really study. It was part of the job. So I worked over in business services. Mm-hmm. I started in the mailroom, and there was another group over there that did office supplies. Okay. So we delivered paper and pens and everything to every department here on the campus. And the system that the school used to handle the ordering and all of that internally was all done on an AS400. And of course, with my mail job, I got to know the guys over in the MIS department really well. Uh-huh. And uh, we were a part of a, uh, a team that was helping them write that software. And they were great. This part of my whole experience at LCC, these guys would just be like, hey, you're interested, sit down and I'll show you how to do this. Really? So I never took any formal classes here. Uh, it's just as a part of the working in this environment, the... Um, yeah, the opportunity was there to learn how to do things. It so, was incredible. So I find this fascinating because colleges are amazing places to learn. And you can learn formally in a classroom where you're paying tuition, you're getting, you're getting credits and, and, and working toward a degree. But what, what I'm hearing about your experience is your actual student employment, yeah. working with folks in um, administrative services and MIS, which would be what management information systems. Yeah. yeah. Um, that that what turned into a marketable skill for you working with these uh, working uh, with this computer system. Yeah, without question. I mean, the I used to tell people I went on to get two other degrees, and and you know I would always get in a conversation about LCC. You know, where is that? Mm-hmm. One of the great things about the school when I was here, and I imagine it's the same now, is that the the people that were teaching were practitioners. They right. they did this for a living, mm-hmm. which I think in education I've learned is incredibly important. So right. they were like in this story. The guy who ran the MIS department, the he, he was passionate about what he did. And all I had to do was show an interest, and he was like, come on in. So after work, I would spend time there. He would give me a terminal. I would I was writing code, just not really goofing around, just learning. He loved it. And I learned a skill that actually turned into my career. That is so cool. So the coding you did here, um, in, not as part of a class, but as part of your job, we used that software to get things done here yeah. at the college. Get, and, and because um, this is getting to be, um, you know, it's the principles are the same, but that was like a mainframe uh, system, right? Yep. The, very different than the kind of uh, PC environment that people are used to. Talk to me a little bit about what it was like to, you know, write code on one of those dumb terminals and uh, <laughs> actually have something happen. Well, you know, we, we, yeah, it was that was part of the interest. It was fun because, <clears throat> like like you said, we were actually trying to do something. Yeah. So here we were trying to figure out how to 
optimize the supplies that we had in our warehouse based on what people on the campus need. You know, who ordered canary paper? You know, what department ordered canary color paper versus another one? So, so it was an interesting sort of intellectual challenge to write software that helped us figure that out so that we ordered the right amount so we had it on hand to get to the college. And it, it wasn't, uh, it, it, was, it was more of a experiment. It was fun. We were like, we could make our jobs easier if we just do this. And so it was an incredible, incredible experience. I, I love picturing that. And for, and for our, uh, the, the listeners who are younger than me and don't remember this kind of computing, what Rick, what you're talking about is like just characters on a screen, oh, right? Yeah. No pictures, no. no drag and drop. This is before any kind of you know Windows or Apple. This is a command line thing yeah. that you're doing, right? You're looking probably at a green screen or an orange screen and, and typing in letters and numbers. Yeah, green green screen terminals on a on a huge machine that sat here on campus. And you're right, it was before you know it was before the internet. People, cell phones were around. People still had pagers. You know, it's kind of a, that era in technology. Mm-hmm. So super exciting and. Um, you just a person my age at that time in my life wouldn't have had access to that kind of an environment to do something real right. in a mainframe computer and here it was just sort of like come on in and do this i mean i found it to be it, w- it was amazing actually that that is something that i think is different for community colleges in a in a very positive way i mean it, a, a student who was showing interest like that at a large maybe research university wouldn't have that person sit you in front of a terminal and say, hey, see if you can write some code to, to track that canary paper. Right. That's right. So, so when, you, when, did it, when did it occur to you that these, were more, uh, uh, that these were skills that might allow you to fly in a different way, not flying the cargo, but, but flying you know, in, the, in the software world? You know, I told that story earlier when the friend of mine in California needed help. It was just, hey, I've done this before, so mm-hmm. just get me in front of a terminal and I'll, I'll know exactly so what to do. So tell me about that. What's that first uh, enterprise or, or, or project that you worked on? Uh, it was a sporting goods store uh, in California that uh, they believed that they had some internal theft happening, and they were trying to write a program to see if they could determine what was happening. They had like 72 stores. So... I said to him over lunch, I said, well, listen, everybody has to buy with their employee number and you're going to have all those transactions on your on your mainframe. Mm-hmm. And why don't you go look at those patterns and see what he didn't know how to do that. So he put me in front of a terminal after lunch and said, show me how to do it. Literally, it was 10 lines of code. And out came a report. And it's, it's kind of a bad story, but a good story. They wound up terminating like 10 employees. Okay, who, so you were able to write some code where they could find out where this yeah. loss was happening. That's right. Yeah, I mean, that's a bad story, but the good part of it is that, you know, this technology, this skill allowed this business to solve the problem that it couldn't solve before. That's right. The second part of that, just to be very quick, the second part of that was, hey, we're trying to rewrite some basic algorithms around our inventory management. And I remembered what we were doing here for the office. I said, listen, I've done a little of this before. So I got a week-long project that helped them predict demand and then create, you know, the supply that they needed to in their stores, which for retailers, inventory is everything, right? It's where okay. all their mom- All right. But I had done it with pens and papers and all kinds of stuff here, paper clips here on campus. It was the same concept, and uh, just it was total luck, to tell you the truth, that 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 opportunity presented itself, and I'd done a little bit of that here, and 
it just took off from there. Well, you say luck. I hear what you're saying. But you know, one of the things that you said earlier is that as you were working as a student employee, there were folks who had jobs here at LCC who recognized in you some curiosity, some initiative and drive to the point where they kind of grabbed you and said, hey, work on this. Yeah. Um, that's one of the things I love about Institute. And by the way, stuff like that happens still at LCC. Not everybody who uh, is a teacher or imparts knowledge is necessarily a faculty member in the classroom. That's one of the things I love about our college. We've got great people who do all kinds of teaching. And what I'm hearing you say is there's this sort of informal curriculum or oh, yeah. something going on where you, where you learned a lot just by being here. There's no question. I mean, we had... Um just a couple of names from the past. The yeah. guy, the guy who ran the flight schools, he, he was the chief pilot. His name was Tom Crashen. Okay, I'll never forget Tom. He 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 was just a real human being. And the first, you know, when you're when you're new in that environment, you go out to the airport and there's airplanes everywhere. Right. Super welcoming guy, and he was just a role model. And then I come down here and I work in business services and I get to meet, of course, the folks in the MIS department, but but your predecessor, probably of two or three cycles, mm -hmm. Abel Sykes Jr. Yes, was Dr. The, Sykes, sure. And I was in his office uh, every day and he would say hello and quite often he would, what's going on, How, you know, what, what's happening over there? So he was, it was just informal conversations, which I think shape, probably helped shape my character more than I really recognized then, uh -huh. but I certainly do now. So it's, yeah, you, you, you have faculty that's great. You have administration people that you can, you just have access to them in a smaller environment like LCC, and it's, uh, it's life-changing. I mean, I, it was really important for me. I, I love kid. hearing that. And by the way, I have heard so many stories about Dr. Sykes, and, you know, he has passed, uh, yep. and, and his tenure here as president is getting to be a long time ago. But there's still a lot of great positive memories about a, what a warm and engaging person he was, how positive he was, and, of course, our library building, the teaching uh, technology learning center is, is named after him. Right. Uh, there's a great picture of him in the, in the lobby there. So, so LCC people had a big influence on you. Now, so you're, you're, you're working information technology, you're, you, you had your aviation career. You did go on to get other degrees. Where did you, where did you study and what were the other degrees that you earned? I studied computer science at the uh, University of Phoenix, mm -hmm. so another sort of non-traditional kind sure, of sure. Uh, university. Primarily online. Yep, yep primarily mm -hmm. online. And then I got my master's degree in software engineering at Golden Gate University, which was literally in a building right next to a building I worked uh, at in San Francisco. So it was perfect. I could work all day and go to school at night. And Well, and that, that activity, I mean, we talk about the dot-com boom. My own sister, who's got an MBA, she, she went out to San Francisco with a buddy who did a startup. There was so much entrepreneurial activity, uh, particularly as you know, the uh, information technology and software boomed, right? So you worked in that uh, sporting goods environment. Tell me a little bit about what where you went from there in, in technology and software. Yeah, most of it, the early days revolved around retail. It was just sort of a, a, a skill I had, a, a domain I understood. Uh -huh. So I worked for a company called Cost Plus World Market. You probably probably have heard of them, no? Uh, Discovery Channel. Oh, okay. I, I worked for Discovery Channel. We did. We worked in the IT department way back in the early days of Discovery. You could watch a show, and then it would say, hey, "Call one eight hundred Discovery if you want to order the video." Okay. We wrote the software that allowed the the agents to to manage that in, those incoming calls and place the orders and get the videos shipped to your house. Okay. Um, yeah. So that's really kind of that, that's how it started. It just sort of grew from there. The 
I, I took my first executive role uh, for Louis Vuitton out of Paris. They have a big division. They had a big division here in the U.S., which eventually we moved to Hong Kong. Okay. That started all my international travels. So I was their CIO, Chief Information Officer. Um, and yeah. so you did that in Hong Kong. Did that in Hong Kong. Okay, and that was and that's that is fashion apparel industry, right? But you are, are probably a bigger brand than that, right? Yeah, they have they have about a hundred tag hair watches to Dom Perignon and just about everything in between. Oh, okay. So a huge international enterprise, and you're chief information officer for them in Asia. Yep. And then you worked in Europe as well. I worked in Europe. After I, after I had come back from Asia, I went to work for a company called Cisco Systems, a huge networking uh, The sister company. I mentioned worked for Cisco oh, as well. Yeah, definitely. Big, big company. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and I was running uh, services for them, so professional services, which were generally customers using our technology. We helped them get the most out of it. It's the best way to describe it. Mm -hmm. And they had a pretty big business in Europe, and the president of that group was retiring, so I got a chance to take my family overseas. It was supposed to be a two-year assignment. It turned into seven years, and my kids wound up going to school. You know, they were sixth grade, I think, when we moved, the, the youngest one. So they went right up through university uh, in Europe. Really? Yeah. Right, so where were you living? What part of Europe? Uh, we lived in Brussels. Okay, yep. in Belgium. All in right. Belgium, yep. And and then uh, the is it the Blue uh, Planet uh, opportunity that brought you back to the states? No, I came. I was still with Cisco. They mm -hmm. repatriated me back to the states, and mm -hmm. then uh, I met the CEO of a company called Sienna, which is the parent company of Blue Planet. One of the best guys I've ever worked for in my entire career. His name's Gary Smith. He he and I happened to cross paths, and he said, y "You got to come over and do this for me." So so tell me a little bit about Blue Planet. What do you, what do you do there? Well, it's a it's a small smallish company. We're just about 160 million in revenue. Mm -hmm. um, we write software for these large carriers around the world, mm -hmm. and, and I run everything from sales to, to R and D. Fantastic, so, fantastic. Yeah. Now, I do have a question for you. Do you when you you work with so many IT professionals in so many different uh, sectors? Have you have you bumped into other folks who had who got their start or have some kind of connection to community college? Have you have you have you found other folks who benefited from a community college like you have? Yeah, a handful actually, a few that actually came through LCC. Believe it or not, I was at a conference in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. Cisco is your sister, probably a huge company. It's a giant company. She she went there. The, uh, a company she worked for was acquired, you know. And yeah, yeah. that happened to a buddy of mine too. So That's right. so so you met other LCC folks who were in that Cisco environment? Yeah, I saw somebody at a table. This is a local story, but his last name was Weber, which most people would pronounce as Weber. And uh -huh. I'm like, you got to be from you got to be from around Michigan. Uh -huh. Turns out he went here. He went to school in Portland just up the street from where I live. So yeah, I'd met a number of people and we I had a office in Austin, Texas for a while and I bet half of our staff was going to a community college in Austin. It was just a really popular place for kids to come out of high school and learn a trade like software. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they they viewed it as sort of a, a, a technical kind of path versus an academic path. And um, I, I had a number of employees out of a community college there. Yeah, ACC is a good school. Yeah. And Austin is a cool town. It's a cool town. Well, so so your your LCC experience has taken you all over the world. Is, are, there other, are there other memories about being here uh, that you'd like to share? I know um, as, a, as a student employee, 
uh, one of the perks was actually having a place to park, park right? Yeah. <laughs> tell me, tell me about what it was like to be a student here in the in the late eighties. Yeah, you know, in the eighty eighty nine coming down here, uh, I think the Gannon parking garage was just built. It was somewhere seventy six. Yeah, it was built in seventy six, so it was relatively new. And everything else was street parking, mm-hmm. and there was a garage just up here on Capitol, but mm-hmm. it was always full. It was all the local businesses filled it and up, and all the state employees and everything. Yeah, a very busy time. Yeah, and so as a as a student coming down here. Um, if you didn't have a little, I'll never forget it. It was a little green parking pass that said LCC on it. You had to pay for parking. And it wasn't, you know, for, for a kid, that wasn't trivial. Right. So when I got my, when I, I started as a student aid employee here, and then I got hired as a part-time, and they handed me that parking pass, I remember thinking, oh, this is life-changing. Special. You know? <laughs> special. I'm going to have you a spot to... I can park in. And yeah, it was uh, it was fun. And it was just a great environment to be to be down here. I love being downtown. Yeah, yeah, I do too. I really do. So tell me, were the, it sounds like you were busy, so maybe you weren't able to take part in many activities, but were there uh, you know, extracurricular or outside of class activities you were able to uh, take part in, or were you always uh, heading out to the airport to get yeah. uh, flight time? No, I was always headed to the airport after, after work, but I think one of the things I really loved about LCC was a big part of my social sort of experience as a kid was right here mm-hmm. in town. Uh, we talked about Dr. Sykes. I mean, he and I used to wind up in the gym together. Run. There was a there was this tiny lap in this gym, uh-huh. uh, and we wound up there before I'd go out to the campus. We just worked out on the same days. So I don't know. I just had a great. There were so many people here that I knew that this was sort of my social world. Working was out in the campus. Like uh-huh. it was, I was out all the time. So yeah, night nighttime was school and daytime was here, going to lunch with people and hanging out with people on campus. It was it's something I'll never forget. It right. was a fantastic experience. And coming from Fowler, Lansing's sort of the big city. It right? was. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Exactly. <laughs> it was. And then and then the world got a lot bigger for you, right? I mean, bigger. when you talk about all the places you've lived, all the experiences you've had, uh, LCC's taken you a lot of different places. Yeah, I'm <clears throat> I'm super proud of uh, what I accomplished here because it was more than you know, I got a two-year degree in aviation flight technology, but, um, you know, I, at that time, I knew all the board members of the school because I delivered their board packets. You know, this was before email. Yeah. So I would have coffee with them in their house when I would deliver their packets. So back then, it, it didn't dawn on me, but the kind of exposure that I had was something that was really, really special. And as I lived in different places around the world, like you said, a small little farming community to the big city of Lansing, mm-hmm. and then I'm in Hong Kong and Sydney, Australia, and London. I felt like I was ready for that. Like it was, uh, I was confident when I left here. That's probably the most important thing because people treated me like I mattered. And uh, that was super important. Well, you did matter and you still do. And, and it's, it's really inspiring to hear about the things that you learned as a student employee. I mean, what you learned in your degree was important. But one of my big takeaways from our conversation is just by uh, working with folks who took an interest in you and were uh, confident in your ability to solve problems, that those were the skills that were that led you to your further degrees and 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 landed you in the corner office CEO uh, yeah. role uh, for for a big tech firm. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, Rick, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show and all the best in your future endeavors, wherever um, your skills take you flying in the future. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Yeah. LCC Alumni Stories is recorded, engineered, and produced by me, Steve Robinson, on LCC's downtown campus. The soundtrack, Who Told You, is licensed through DeWolf Music and was performed by Ian McCanty. 
Thanks for listening. Learn more about what our alumni have been up to at lccconnect.org. And if you're an LCC alum and want to share your story, send me an email at steve.robinson at lcc.edu. Until next time, keep learning. This is LCC Connect on WLNZ 89.7 FM. Featuring the staff, faculty, students, and others that help to make Lansing's Premier College what it is today. You're listening to LCC Connect. To find out more about our featured programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Founded in 1957, LCC has addressed the needs of Michigan industries through education for more than 65 years. Anchored by the downtown campus located in the heart of Lansing, LCC serves mid-Michigan communities with additional campuses in Delta Township, East Lansing, and Livingston County. The college offers more than 200 degrees and certificate programs and is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Those interested in learning more about LCC may visit lcc.edu slash youbelong. Who do I swim for? I swim on my high school team for my mom, who gets up at 5 o'clock every morning to take me to practice. I swim for hugs from my teammates, spaghetti dinners, and my lucky neon green goggles. I swim for Coach Murray, who pushes me to dig deep and finish strong. More than 7.7 million American teenagers participate in high school sports every year, including about 300,000 here in Michigan. They're all learning essential life lessons, like the importance of hard work, time management and self-discipline, skills that are helping them become better leaders and more active, responsible citizens. Most of all, I swim for myself, because I learn more about who I am and who I want to be every time I dive into the pool. That's who I swim for. This message presented by the Michigan High School Athletic Association and the Michigan Interscholastic Athletic Administrators Association. Lansing Community College's Massage Program is accepting clients for the Spring Semester 2022 Massage Clinic. The Massage Clinic is open to the public and provides an opportunity for the students of the Massage Program to gain valuable client experience. Relaxation massages and therapeutic massages are both available for a nominal fee. Visit lcc.edu and search Massage for more information. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. This is Bob Myers from the Historical Society of Michigan with a Michigan History Moment. In the carefree days before the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, bottles of patent medicines lined store shelves. In Saginaw, Michigan, sufferers could avail themselves of a favorite nostrum, Hinkley's Bone Liniment. James Hinckley first concocted the stuff in 1856. He sold it in lumber camps and in drugstores across mid-America. What was in it? Well, Hinckley's bone liniment contained some active ingredients. A few drops of wormwood oil worked as a laxative. A quarter ounce of hemlock oil cured respiratory problems and muscle aches. Another quarter ounce of thyme oil killed germs and relieved coughing. And a half ounce of turpentine oil helped with joint pain toothache, and lung congestion. Capsicum fluid extract 
from Hot Peppers gave it a kick. Ah, but the best part was Hinkley's main ingredient, 87% pure grain alcohol. What did Hinkley's bone liniment cure? According to the advertising, it cured cholera, rheumatism, dysentery, asthma, chills, ague, internal pain, sore eyes, headaches, earaches, colic, diarrhea, coughs, hemorrhoids, weak lungs, lameness, frozen feet, canker, sore throat, bronchitis, malaria, dyspepsia, and influenza. Lumberjacks bought Hinkley's Bone Liniment in 25 cent, 50 cent, and $1 bottles. It was good for internal and external use. The label said so. Given the thumping dose of alcohol, one suspects that the usage was mostly internal. In 1864, D.F. Foster of East Saginaw bought out James Hinckley. He marketed Hinckley's liniment with a catchy little ditty. Remember then, this pain's great master is made alone by D.F. Foster, who far and near spread its renown from Jefferson Street, East Saginaw Town. Declared Foster of his wonderful cure-all, it heads off serious sickness, carries youth into old age, and makes advanced years pain-free. Hinckley's bone liniment somehow escaped the restrictions of the Pure Food and Drug Act. The government did, however, force the makers to drop most of their medicinal claims, lower the alcohol content from 87 to 47 percent, and remove the word bone from its name. Renamed Old Hinckley's Liniment, the cure-all was still produced as late as 1960, more than a century after its introduction. This Michigan History Moment was brought to you by michiganhistorymagazine.org. Connecting you with Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Michigan residents age 25 or older may qualify for Michigan ReConnect a program providing free or reduced tuition to students who have not earned a prior college degree. ReConnect students are responsible for books and fees. Visit lcc.edu reconnect for more information. I'm a third grade teacher. I'm a school bus driver. I am a parent. I am a teacher's aide. And I agree to be identified as a caring adult who pledges to help bullied students. I will listen carefully to all students who seek my help. And act on their behalf. To put an immediate stop to bullying. I will work with other caring adults to create a safe learning environment for all the students in my school. In my school. In my school. In my school. I'm Stephen Cook, president of the Michigan Education Association. Help us create safe, bully-free learning environments for all students in Michigan. One caring adult can make all the difference. Take the pledge to be that adult at nea.org slash bullyfree. Adults have the power to stop bullying in our schools. It starts with me. It starts with me. It starts with me. Bully-free. It starts with me. A message from the Michigan Education Association. Hi, I'm Melissa Kaplan, and I host a show called Galaxy Forum on LCC Connect. It's all about the creativity in our classrooms and on campus here at LCC and the connections we have with the community. You can catch Galaxy Forum here on LCC Connect or listen anytime at lccconnect.org. 
Operations at Lansing Community College is a proud collaborator of the Lansing Promise Scholarship, offering graduating high school seniors who live within the Lansing School District and attend a high school within district boundaries an opportunity to attend LCC. The scholarship offers 65 credits over the course of four years from high school graduation. For more information on the Lansing Promise Scholarship at LCC, please visit lcc.edu hope. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Welcome to The Safety Plan, the show where I cover the latest cyber scam and how to avoid it on LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. I'm Paul Schwartz, and I'm happy that you are here. Let's do this. This morning, my daughter was singing a song, VeggieTales theme song, and now that song is stuck in my head. I, I guarantee you've heard of it. Broccoli, celery, gotta be VeggieTales. <clears throat> Lima beans, collard greens, peachy keen, VeggieTales. Cauliflower, sweet and sour, half an hour, VeggieTales. But my kid was singing with cybersecurity words, so it went something like this. Unemployment fraud, malware, gotta be fishy tails. Gas pump scams, empty bank accounts, and more malware, fishy tails. Credit card theft, wire transfers, billions lost, fishy tails. <laughs> well, obviously the college has allowed me budgetless artistic freedom on this show, and I will take advantage of that position. So, welcome to the safety plan. Here's the format. First, I will describe a real-world cyber scam like phishing or malware or the IRS imposter scam or scareware or one of the many, many, many other cyber scams. Second, I will then explain why it could happen to you. And third, how to protect yourself so it doesn't happen to you. So why should you listen to the safety plan episodes? First, as a leader, I want to share my cybersecurity knowledge with you so that you can hopefully learn and grow and become inspired by it. Second, a community knowledgeable on cyber scams will not fall for them in the future. Third, if people start practicing good cyber practices in their lives and at home, then they practice those same skills at work, which makes your business or company or local community college more secure. Win, win, win. Okay, I am Paul Schwartz, and I work at Lansing Community College as the Director of Information Security. I coordinate security issues for the college, things like data breach coordination, account compromise investigations, vulnerability scanning of our network, you know, implementing projects to improve the college's security, and training our users in cybersecurity. I've worked in cybersecurity for 27 years, which includes 20 years in the Air Force before ending up at Lansing Community College. I have multiple computer monitors at work. So people think I know stuff, which proves I am smart. S-M-R-T smart. Now, it's time for the cybersecurity roundup. Let's focus on today's topic, sextortion. Lansing Community College employees are regularly cyber attacked using sextortion. Sextortion is a type of fraud where the criminals threaten the release of fake sexual images or false information that the victim in order to coerce them into paying a Bitcoin demand. It usually starts with the criminal sending an email to a victim threatening to send pornographic images and other compromising information to the victim's family, friends, coworkers, or social network contacts unless a Bitcoin ransom is paid. Often the scam email informs victims that their webcams were hacked and used to make recordings of them visiting porn sites. 
To create the appearance of real danger, the message is filled with details from the victim's life, collected from a personal blog or from a social network account. Sometimes it has one of the victim's passwords harvested from a previous data breach. Well, let me explain that a little bit further. So we have um, you know, numerous data breaches. You probably heard about them in the news over the last you know, few decades, say Home Depot and Target and Yahoo and so forth. Criminals know that users rarely change their passwords. It's called password reuse. And they know also that you reuse your credentials. So that's your username. So typically people use their personal email address as the username for a lot of accounts. And they use that same password at a lot of accounts. So if they breached one of those, they've got a high chance that you use it on all your other accounts to include your email and so forth. And so they'll include that username and password in the email in an attempt to establish authenticity. The goal is to make users fear that their computers might have actually been hacked and used to observe and record potentially compromising actions. Let me read uh, you a real-life example of a sextortion email. The sender's account is usually, uh, you know, in this case, it's a free account, you know, you know, such as like a Gmail or Outlook, some account you can get without, with a little effort. It, or they, the criminals could be using a compromised account. A compromised account is one the criminals have gained access to and are using it to perpetuate fraud or further phishing. Criminals gain access to email accounts through, you know, phishing or stolen credentials, uh, you know, credentials being the username and passwords, or they could be guessing the username and password, or, you know, as I mentioned earlier, credential reuse, or from malware, one of many, many other techniques to get access to people's email accounts. Also, the criminal might be just pretending that they've compromised your account. And so they can do that by changing and, and falsifying that sender's email address and the display name of it. So both of those can be manipulated to be whatever the criminal wants to use. And so criminals like to make it look like that email is coming from your own account to give it further legitimacy that they've hacked your account. But they're just faking that display name and that email address to make it look like they're already in your email account. Okay, so here's the email. Greetings. I monitored your device on the net for a long time and successfully managed to hack it. It was not difficult for me as I have been in this business for a long time. When you visited a pornography site, I was able to put a virus on your computer. That gave me full access to your device, namely your camera, microphone, phone calls, messages, what happens on your screen, phone book, passwords to all social networks, etc. Okay, I want to talk about this paragraph for a second. The second most common way uh, to deliver malware is through website visits. And what happens is when you go to a website, if it's been compromised or it's you know some random malicious website, there is automatic communication that goes on between your browser and that website server. And this is without your intervention at all. And so if you have vulnerabilities on your computer or it's a malicious site that wants to push malware to you, that automatically starts and downloads that malware onto your computer and then starts scanning for other software vulnerabilities or other weaknesses and, and uh, moving sideways, it's called, looking for you know, further compromising um, you know, channels and, and elevating the privileges and so forth. And this can all happen without your intervention, just by visiting a website, if it's malicious. Here, let's go on to the next sentence of this 
sextortion email. To hide my virus, I've written a special driver, which is, just means software, which is updated every few hours and makes it impossible to detect. Now, this is um, somewhat of a lie. Um, and software can you know, call back out to the internet if you have an internet connection uh, and update itself without your intervention. Uh, but making it impossible to detect is not possible because um, you could set up you know, Wireshark or some other monitoring software and be able to detect this type of behavior. But most people don't have that. So the, the criminal is just implying that you know, they have the you know, total control of the situation and you can't stop it and detect it. The next sentence is, that's how I obtained your username, Smith. P and password pencil one. Now those are fake username and passwords. But again, like I mentioned earlier, the criminal got those from a data breach and is putting this in their sextortion email in order to make it seem more legit that they've actually compromised your account. And typically this works with a lot of users because they reuse their passwords and don't ever change them. And so um, when the criminal mentions your username and password, it's probable that you're still using it and they're that that makes the victim think, oh, this criminal really has got my information. Here's the next slide. I captured video of your screen and camera and edited a video of you naked in one part of the screen and a pornographic video that you opened at that moment in the other part of the screen. Okay. So I've seen this also a technique where the criminals will say, go to your LinkedIn profile or your Facebook page and take your pictures, say your headshot, and then Photoshop it onto a pornographic image or video. And they would use that uh, as leverage um, and, and, and threaten you to either pay the ransom or, or extortion, or they're going to email that to your coworkers and your, your spouse and, and family and your, your grandma. And, and so in order to protect your, re your reputation of this false claim, you may want to uh, pay the ransom. Uh, again, this is all fake. Uh, the next line is, I can safely send any data from your device to the internet, as well as anyone who is recorded in your contacts, messages, and social networks. I can also give anyone access to your social networks, emails, and messengers. Uh, so this is uh, somewhat true and false. Uh, if they've infiltrated your computer, yes, they have access to the data on it, uh, potentially. And um, But... Uh, giving access to other accounts uh, if you reuse uh, your credentials is possible, but hopefully you have unique passwords and usernames for all these accounts so that and, and kept those in a password manager that the criminal hasn't had access to. So that will not be possible. Here's the next line. If you don't want me to do it, then transfer $1,000 to my Bitcoin wallet. My Bitcoin wallet address is BC11. It's a, it's a series of 26 letters and numbers is how the Bitcoin works. I give you 48 hours to transfer the money. Otherwise, I will perform the above. The timer started automatically as soon as you open the email. And I am also automatically notified when this email is open. Now, that is technically true. Um, if you opened up the email and then took action such as like downloading images and it, there could be an image in there, which is what we call an in information security is a beacon pixel, uh, which will then communicate from your browser to the malicious server. And that would inform the criminal that you have read the email um, 
And so that would, uh, you know, then the criminal could say at that point, I'll start this 48 hour clock. So that I guess technically could be possible. Here's the next line. If you do not know how to transfer money and what Bitcoin is, type buy Bitcoin into Google. So here the criminal is trying to provide a little bit of customer support and that most people don't know what Bitcoin is, how to buy it, how to transfer it and so forth. So they're, they're trying to give some instructions there. As soon as I receive a transfer of the required amount, the system will automatically inform me about the received payment and offer to delete from my servers all the data I receive from you. And therefore, I will confirm the deletion. So here we go. The criminal is now asking for you to trust them. And even though they've maliciously attacked you and taken your data, they promise, cross their heart and little pinky swear, that they will delete any of the data they've taken from you and not resell it and not further extort you. So there's a, a big bridge to cross there, whether you trust the criminal or not. Uh, here's the next line. Do not try to complain anywhere. As a purse or Bitcoin wallet does not track, mail from where the letter came from is not tracked and created automatically. So there is no point in writing to me. Again, a lot of broken English here and uh, grammar uh, issues here. So perhaps English isn't the first language of this uh, criminal. If you try to share this email with anyone, the system will automatically send a request to the servers and they will proceed to upload all the data to social networks. So um, this is very technically tough. Unless the criminal is sitting in your email account or monitoring the sent items, I'm not sure how they would know that you've shared this email with anyone. Also, changing passwords and social networks mail device will not help you because all data is already downloaded to the clusters of my server. Um, so that, that could be true that they've taken all your data. And so changing your passwords at that point won't help, but they will help further perpetuate and get the criminal out of your accounts by changing, um, you know, the passwords to all your accounts. Uh, again, this is all fake, so that probably won't help anything. Um, but, um, good advice on part of the criminal saying, don't take any actions to prevent this, um, which is, um, definitely in the criminal's interest. And the final line, good luck and don't do anything stupid. So. A good, uh, good sextortion example there. Last year, I responded to a particularly intense sextortion incident at Lansing Community College. The criminals created pornographic image videos and an elaborate storyline uh, with the victim's personal details, which the criminal pulled from Facebook and LinkedIn and Lansing Community College web pages. The criminals also visited a website like whitepages.com, where the victims, well, and everyone's personal data, such as phone numbers and addresses, and relationships, ages, emails, criminal records, financial info, so forth. It's all displayed on these websites like whitepages.com. The criminals used free texting services and even coordinated a robocall service to contact the victim and his coworkers and his spouse and, you know, all of her coworkers. So the more the criminal can contact and embarrass, it, it would definitely be leverage on the reputation of the victim uh, to try and get them to pay. The attackers set up fake LinkedIn accounts and connected to the victim's LinkedIn contacts to continue the spread of fake pornographic images and attack, you know, the victim's professional reputation. The criminals used free anonymous email accounts to send threatening emails around the clock to over 130 of the victim's coworkers. The LCC uh, Information Security Office, which I uh, head up, we coordinated the incident response for this uh, with three different police departments in the FBI. Now, this could happen to anyone, and there is little we can do to stop it. We can block the email address, but the criminals can just create another one and continue their attacks. Anyone can create as many free email accounts as they want at you know Gmail or Hotmail or Outlook and so forth without identification. 
So if you get a sextortion email, I recommend the following. First, don't click on anything such as links or attachments or images or download those images or if they provide an encrypted attachment with the password and the email, don't enter it into the into the attachment because that would that could trigger further uh, malware. Second, don't reply or engage with the sender. Third, report the email to your company's or your internet providers, your internet service providers help desk uh, for incident response. File a police report with your local police department. Suspend your social networking accounts. You know, change your passwords on um, accounts as a precaution. Conduct antivirus scans on all your devices, you know, such as your phone and your personal and your work computers. Um, enable two-factor authentication on any account where it is available. So when you go to change those passwords, check to see if two-factor authentication is possible and set that up. And particularly, this is important if you, you, you reuse passwords. Definitely, you need unique passwords on all your accounts. And, and finally, maybe consider alerting your coworkers and family and friends of the attack. You know, get the step ahead of the criminal before the criminal starts contacting your coworkers and family and friends. Okay, well... That's a wrap of today's safety plan episode. If you have any questions or have been a victim of cyber scam, tell me about it by emailing lcc-connect at lcc.edu. Or you can find more info and past episodes of the safety plan on the internet at lcc.edu connect. This episode of the safety plan was recorded by Paul Schwartz in the TLC Tower in downtown Lansing Community College and produced by Lane Ingram and engineered by Big D Dedalian. I'm Paul Schwartz, and this is LCC Connect. Voices, vibes, vision. So long. Keep connected with LCC Connect at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices, vibes, vision. Lansing Community College's Fresh Start program forgives outstanding student balances, allowing students to re-enroll without penalty. Fresh Start does not apply to student loan creditors. Learn more at lcc.edu slash fresh start. If there was ever a time to live united, it is now. Now is the time to speak with one voice, to build up, not tear down. It's time to join hands and live united against the problems that keep our communities from thriving. United Way fights for the health, education, and financial stability of every person in every community. Will you? Volunteer or donate now at unitedway.org. LCC Connect is looking for student stars to catch the vibe with a podcast power-up. Lansing Community College students can submit show ideas from now until June 3rd for a chance to host a show on LCC Connect. Find details at lcc.edu slash powerup. Lansing Community College Performing Arts features several events and presentations throughout the year. Find more information by visiting lcc.edu slash showinfo. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. You're listening to Art Happens Here, the podcast that explores the often curious and occasionally amazing art installations on, in, and around the campuses of Lansing Community College. I'm your host, Bruce Mackley.
So one of the sculpture ideas we had was for a cube, uh, it, a big, simple square, a block, to reside right on Washington Square, oddly enough, you know, the irony there. Uh, what we had was, we start out with three designs, uh, usually top tier, mid-level, and low tier cost-wise for fabrication, installation, and so on. We always recognized the, the importance of keeping these, keeping a budget in mind for these. We, we never went over the top. In fact, it drove every decision we made about doing any of these installations. The three designs, the three original designs, uh, the top one was, um, let me see if I can remember this, it was a large black, I think it was painted black, and it, it was, it was going to be fabricated like it was melting. Like the, the bottom part was coming down in the, into this goop, and it would have been the, the pedestal, and it would, was turning into like uh, liquid gold, right? I'm not sure what the significance of it was, but it was really visually, visually engaging, right? The mid-level design was uh, picture uh, just a metal steel cube with drawers pulled out, with various sections like pulled out and angles and crevices and so on. In retrospect, it would have been a nightmare to fabricate for welding and grinding and finishing the edges. Uh, it just would have been way over the top cost-wise. The basic model was just a simple square. It was a simple, perfect, multicolor cube. Thinking of the colors, I, I wanted to do something a little... Originally, I, wanted, I was thinking more subtle. But as it turned out, uh, what inspired these colors were uh, military commendations, military badging. You know, the, uh, the implied nature of, of that was the inspiration for, uh, for the direction we went on with these. And they were all, you know, fenced off, various different widths and shapes, and not various shapes, different widths and, and so on. So that was the one that was chosen. And I won't lie to you, it was a little disappointing because I wanted the drawer version, but this one was by far more fiscally responsible. So hard to design, not so much. I mean, I think it would took me 20 minutes uh, to do to do the sketch, and then another hour to do the final art. Come to find out that the real beauty with this thing was uh, the paint and how they fabricated it. The company, uh, and I'm going to mention the company. It's AIS Construction Equipment. Uh, fabricated this thing and they painted it. There's a phrase. Uh, it's called oil can. It was tossed around, and what it refers to is dense. You know, you see like metal or, you know, body of a car dinged, you know, it just gives, it, it gives up the illusion, if you will. And we wanted to avoid that. So I did see pictures of the cube, this particular cube, uh, before it was put together. And inside is structurally complex. I mean, there, it's made from, made from pretty heavy gauge steel. I think it was eight feet across. The, the sides were eight feet square. Um, and it, uh, yeah, it was put together and the seams, there are no seams, the edges and the corners were perfection. I mean, and the paint job, you look at it now and it looks minted. I can't figure out how they did it with the colors coming together. I don't see any overlap and nothing. That's where I think the, uh, the perfection of this, of this sculpture lies is in its simplicity. We have it up on, a, on an end. It's upended at a 45-degree angle. Part of that is establishing a visual tension. It sort of looks like it's floating. Uh, there's some landscaping around it, and uh, you can get up to it, but you can't really, can't really touch it. Uh, but it's just like a few feet away. Truth be told, uh, not really one of my favorites, but it is 
approaching icon status. I see it in a lot of photos. It's occupied plenty of selfies. I notice people, plenty of uh, students uh, taking selfies in front of it because it's just, it has like a very strong presence behind you. I think I would have chosen more um, subtle colors, but maybe not. I think it performs great. You might even be able to see it from a plane, from a low-flying plane. I don't know, but it, uh, it was a lot of fun. Leonardo da Vinci once said, Simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Come visit Newton's Cube on LCC's downtown campus. Art Happens Here is a production of LCC Connect. If you want to check out what I've been talking about, visit lccconnect.arc. Thanks for lending us your imagination. This has been a presentation of LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. All shows featured on LCC Connect are recorded at the WLNZ Studio, located on LCC's downtown campus. Each program is podcast-based and can be heard anytime at lccconnect.org. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on one of our shows, connect with us by emailing lcc-connect at lcc.edu.